This is an online communist forum organised jointly by Labour Party Marxists and CPGB. And uh, this week we're doing uh, Week in Politics with uh, Jack Conrad. Uh, talk for about an hour and then open discussion. Jack? Okay, thanks, uh, Stan. Um, relatively um, few um, subjects this week. Um, so I'm going to begin uh, really with um, what it says on the tin, so to speak, with um, the weather, with the climate. And um, just to note, as everyone's seen in terms of headlines, flooding in uh, Belgium, flooding in Germany, flooding in China, flooding um, even in, uh, in, in Britain and um, in London too. Um, fires in Canada, in British Columbia, fires next door uh, in the United States, fires uh, in Turkey, um, permafrost um, melting in Siberia, and you can go on and on and on. And what's interesting now is that there's been a, um, how should we put it, a shift, certainly in news reporting. And uh, we've gone from a situation of, well, this is unusual weather to a situation where this is unusual weather uh, and there's a link between this unusual weather and um, human, human activity. Um, so in terms of this year, there are various reports saying it's the, the wettest, the hottest yet or will be, um, you know, reports along those lines. And of course, this is in the context of um, COP26 uh, and also in preparation uh, for that meeting, the sixth uh, report of the International Panel on climate change. And the first report that they delivered was uh, 31 years ago. Now, what needs to be emphasized about the International Panel on uh, Climate uh, Change is that this is a governmental and scientist panel. And uh, no doubt it's the scientists that draw up uh, the initial reports, but then it's governments uh, that go over these reports and historically what governments have done is put all sorts of disclaimers, all sorts of doubts um, into the reports uh, that the scientists clearly aren't happy with, but basically have to lump it. So the scientists provide the raw material uh, and it's governments uh, that basically uh, present what they are prepared to present out of these reports. And there's clearly a battle, there's clearly a tension uh, between what scientists are reporting, what they're projecting, what they're saying needs to be done and what governments are willing uh, to put out there and what governments are willing to commit to. So this year, uh, we know there's been uh, various leaks, various um, um, indications that what the scientists want to put in uh, to the sixth uh, report 
is that we are approaching tipping point or we've reached tipping point or that we've gone beyond tipping point. Now, what tipping point is all about? No mystery uh, to any Marxist who knows, you know, the A, B and C of dialectics. The, the basic idea is simple, and that is that um, quantity at some point gives way to quality. So the old um, example obviously is uh, water uh, freezing at uh, naught degrees or boiling. So that what was liquid turns into steam, what was liquid turns into something that's solid. And obviously when we come to the climate, uh, we're not talking about something like that. What we're talking about though, is a shift from one paradigm uh, to another. And uh, as a non-expert, I suppose the best example I could give of that um, is to use the example um, of the Gulf Stream. As you know, here in Britain, we're in the um, North Atlantic and we are on a parallel with places like Labrador or somewhere out there in Siberia. Um, and their winters are an awful lot colder uh, than ours. And if it wasn't for the Gulf Stream, uh, you know, Britain would be a very cold place. So what happens with a paradigm shift is that patterns like that get switched off and we have a, a completely different uh, global system. Now, I'm not in a position uh, to say, I don't know if any scientists are in a position because we're we're dealing with something that's uh, dynamic, but what, we're, what we expect is a shift to a different weather system. So for example, it could be under a different weather system uh, that the United States' uh, grain belt gets turned to desert. Uh, I'm not saying that that is the prediction, but it's that sort of thing that one would expect uh, under a paradigm and it's not something that then, if you lower the temperature, then you go back to what was. Um, what you're dealing with is a leap into a different system, and that system would have its own, how should we put it, relative stability. So if we look back at the record, we know uh, that climate change uh, is something that occurs throughout um, history or prehistory if one wants to be pedantic, but also what we can see uh, precisely, you know, when you look at a, a cliff is a series of layers. And what, for example, going from, um, I don't know, um, chalk or limestone uh, to sandstone um, indicates one of those shifts. So what was, for example, uh, under shallow warm waters uh, in, uh, in Britain suddenly then becomes uh, dead uh, conditions and you're getting sand uh, being laid down. Um, you know, so I'm just giving that uh, as an example. And of course, what we are expecting um, with global warming um, isn't, I say just, <laughs> isn't just, not only, would be a better phrase, I don't know, whatever the phrase one wants, um, it, not only... Um, a shift in uh, um, the climate pattern, uh, but also 
uh, going hand in hand with that um, a rise in um, water uh, uh, levels. So we all know the story uh, of Bangladesh, which is a very low-lying uh, country uh, that, you know, if the waters rise, uh, the agriculture uh, disappears. But we also know that an awful lot of cities uh, are built on the coast. A lot of, awful lot of cities are built for good historic reasons, you know, in uh, river valleys. And we know, uh, you know, somewhere like London, if, if, um, if the sea level rose a foot, uh, then what you'd get, you know, in high tide, what you'd get with the pull of the moon, what you'd get with storms is widespread um, flooding and um, uh, huge disruption uh, for the infrastructure, but also huge disruption for human habitation and um, human uh, agriculture. So uh, what we're dealing with here when it comes to the climate uh, isn't a simple uh, linear uh, a development of um, the temperature just going up, you know, by point naught uh, one, point naught two. We're not just dealing with that. At some point, what we're dealing with is the expectation uh, that temperatures start to go up, you know, like a hockey uh, stick, sharply uh, rise. And the debate amongst uh, climatologists at the moment is, are we on the cusp uh, of that leap um, 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 upwards in terms of temperatures and uh, uh, climate systems, uh, or have we actually gone uh, beyond it? That's where the debate is uh, at uh, the present time. So I can quote you, um, you know, many studies, but I'm just picking one out more or less at, at random. Uh, there's a recent study done by someone called William Ripple of uh, Oregon uh, State University. And um, what this uh, uh, climatologist um, argues is that uh, the tipping point has already happened. And um, basically what you're dealing with now is mitigation uh, you're not dealing with how do you avoid um, this tipping point. That's just one example. And I think it's worthwhile contrasting that uh, with the government advisor, Allegra uh, Stratton, who's uh, been on the media, mainly in terms of people taking the piss out of her, of course. And that is the idea that individuals can uh, do their bit uh, when it comes to climate change by not washing uh, plates before they put it in the put them in the dishwasher or when you've got a loaf of bread cut it in half so you don't uh, waste uh, that half but you put it in the freezer well as some wags have pointed out well not all of us have got dishwashers and some of us don't even have uh, freezers uh, but the idea uh, that uh, faced with such a catastrophe and that's what we're talking about uh, that what matters is not washing your plates before you put them in the dishwasher or, or cutting your loaf in half and putting one half of it in the freezer, quite frankly, uh, is, is risible. Um, that what we would certainly be talking about is not what individuals uh, can do, but actually in the, the necessity of social control, social action. And uh, that really brings me uh, to the question of um, 
Glasgow and um, COP26. Uh, now, it, 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 it's easy for us on the left, certainly uh, for Marxists, to convince ourselves uh, that capitalism um, simply can't do anything uh, about the climate, that here you are, here you have a system that, yes, is based on uh, endless expansion, uh, you know, production for profit, but as a necessity, so you end up with production for the sake uh, of production, and a system uh, that's not only organised into rival firms, rival centres of capital, uh, but also uh, those rival centres of capital are protected by antagonistic states, uh, one of which um, seeks advantage uh, over uh, the other. So we have a, a, a pyramidical uh, system of states with a, a global hegemon, but also with challenges uh, to that um, uh, global hegemon being a permanent feature uh, of the system. In other words, the global hegemon is only a temporary, can only be uh, a temporary um, um, hegemon, must always be challenged um, simply because the global hegemon offloads its problems um, onto those further down uh, the pyramid. Having said that, it's certainly worth our while thinking about the history of capitalism over, say, roughly speaking, uh, the last um, hundred, hundred years. And it's worthwhile while thinking about this phrase that was introduced, I think, in 1916, but I'm not going to die on that one, by the German High Command, War Socialism, Kriegssocialismus. And they introduced that phrase, not because they were socialists, but because they had a large section of the population that were socialist. You know, roughly speaking, a third of the electorate, you know, the country's biggest parliamentary fraction was the Social Democratic Party in, in Germany. And they were using this phrase both as a sop to that section of the population, but also because the high command had become convinced that if they relied on the market, if they relied on profit making, um, in order to um, win World War I, they'd lost. Now, you could make the argument, and I certainly would, uh, that by choosing to fight on two fronts at the same time, um, by not winning <laughs> decisively uh, over France and getting bogged down into trench warfare, uh, Germany had already lost it uh, by the winter uh, of 19. 14. Nevertheless, what's remarkable uh, about Germany, if you think about it, fighting a war on two fronts. In the east, uh, there's the Russian Empire, which has vast, vast reserves of uh, manpower. And there in the west, you're facing Imperial France uh, with its global empire, but also uh, Britain, the global hegemon with its massive, massive empire. And later on um, uh, in the war, Britain is joined, Britain and France are joined uh, by the United States. Isn't it remarkable uh, that Germany uh, survived so long um, uh, and actually ended um, having a negotiated uh, peace? True on um, unfavorable terms with reparations. Nonetheless, um, the, the secret 
of its ability to keep on fighting against such uh, tremendous um, odds was precisely war socialism. It was precisely its ability uh, to temporarily suspend the law of value, um, to organize on the basis not of pr production for profit, not on the basis of production in order to accumulate capital, uh, but production on the basis of need. And what the German high command needed uh, was uh, army uniforms, steel helmets, bullets, cannon shells, and cannons. And that's what they got as a result of uh, war socialism, uh, that uh, companies were forcibly merged, true profits were made. Nevertheless, the overriding priority uh, wasn't profit, uh, it was need. And the same thing happened in World War uh, II, that if you look at the most militarized country um, fighting World War II, interestingly, it wasn't Nazi Germany, uh, it was Britain. And because of American aid, but also this war socialism, uh, the home front after all was uh, organized by the Labour Party. Um, you know, it was um, Attlee in charge of the home front, it was Churchill in charge of uh, the foreign front. Uh, it, you know, the deputy prime minister had real power, the, the trade unions had real power under those circumstances. And what you had is the mobilization of a huge percentage uh, of the population, not only the male uh, population, but the militarization of uh, large, large numbers uh, of females uh, as well, who were drafted into agriculture, who were drafted uh, into the factories. You had um, state control over the port, state control over transport. And I'm not just talking about railways, I'm talking about goods uh, uh, wagons. All the way across the board, uh, you had the militarization um, um, of uh, the economy. And my argument would be uh, that, yeah, capitalism was capable of being that capitalism in defense of capitalism, capitalism in defense of the capitalist state was capable um, of temporarily uh, suspending the law of value and producing uh, on the basis of uh, need. And you can make the argument, and I certainly have, uh, that uh, when it came to the COVID pandemic, certainly in Britain, you know, the home of Thatcherism, uh, what we saw is the Chancellor Rishi Sunak tear up, he said, uh, discard, uh, the economic uh, textbooks. Well, it was his economic textbooks that he had to discard. The textbooks of, uh, you know, the Chicago school, the textbooks of uh, you can't buck the market, uh, the textbooks of, uh, um, you know, the state cannot produce any useful results. All of that uh, was scrapped. You had the furlough uh, scheme, uh, you had lockdown, uh, you had the government throwing money uh, at the production of uh, um, a vaccine. And interesting, at least with the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine, a um, British Swedish company, uh, that they'd agreed uh, with the um, scientists at Oxford University to produce that uh, on the basis of um, no profit. I don't know for how many years, a year or two years. Either way, uh, this was clearly the state uh, acting. It wasn't um, a private uh, enterprise. It wasn't the market. I'm sure uh, some people have made a fortune 
um, out of uh, the pandemic. Nevertheless, the point is there uh, that this was state action. And um, we know uh, that in uh, Russia, uh, Lenin was looking at these developments back there in 1916 and 17. And when it came to the collapse of Tsarism, and then the continued collapse of the Russian economy, the Bolsheviks basically put forward the idea uh, that we can come to power uh, in alliance with the peasantry, and we will introduce our own version of war socialism, um, that we will uh, take hold of the trust, we will take hold of the banks. Um, it wasn't because they thought that that was going to you know, introduce uh, socialism. They didn't equate socialism with universal nationalization or something along those lines. But this was Lenin's famous um, uh, pamphlet, how to avoid the impending uh, catastrophe. Um, I'm not going to go on about war communism, except to say that that was a version um, um, of it. Now, so when it comes to the climate, could uh, the capitalist powers uh, carry out such a program? Well, we've seen them carry out such a program uh, when it comes to fighting, when it comes to killing, when it comes to building uh, bombs and bombers, uh, including uh, the nuclear bomb that they um, exploded over Nagasaki and then Hiroshima, can they do the same uh, with the climate uh, question? Um, uh, myself, um, I would take a, um, an open-ended view of it. Um, I simply don't know. Uh, I think it's possible uh, that they could. All I would say is as a system uh, that's organized on the basis of um, competition between capitals, competition between states, we have a, a, a system uh, that has um, a great deal going against it uh, to actually arrive uh, at uh, such a solution. But I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, but what I would uh, uh, emphasize is there's a huge difference between um, war socialism as practiced uh, by the uh, German high command and the program that the working class itself uh, would put uh, into operation. In other words, we need to be well aware that the measures of state control that the capitalist class or capitalism internationally puts in place will almost certainly be based um, um, uh, on worsening uh, the conditions of the vast mass uh, of the population. And I mean that by uh, both economically speaking, uh, but also in terms of uh, democratic uh, uh, rights. Um, that we would expect uh, that as capitalism acts um, uh, against the prospect of uh, runaway climate uh, change, it will be precisely uh, like the situation in um, Germany in 1916, where the right to strike um, um, has been given up or taken away, uh, of where dissidents are locked up, uh, of where people objecting to the continued rule of uh, capitalism are forcibly drafted into the army. I'm not saying exactly that parallel, but that's the point I'm trying to get over. So hence, uh, when we look at the uh, forthcoming 
uh, COP26. It's worthwhile uh, looking at this particular organization, the Climate Crisis Advisory Group. And that includes amongst its ranks, uh, Sir David King, who used to be uh, the government's chief uh, scientific uh, advisor. In other words, a serious um, 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 individual. Okay, so what are they proposing? Well, basically they're saying uh, that things have gone so far uh, that only uh, geoengineering uh, now offers uh, us a way out uh, from catastrophic uh, climate change. That if we look at all the government pledges of stopping, you know, reaching um, carbon um, zero um, uh, net in terms of 2030, 2040, 2050, or whatever the particular date happens to be, that isn't enough. It isn't quick enough. So what this particular advisory group are coming up with are solutions such as uh, refreezing uh, the Arctic um, ice sheets. And so, for example, when it comes to the Arctic, um, this advisory group is saying that what we need to do is artificially create a white cloud, a permanent white cloud um, over the Arctic that has to stay there for something like 20 or 30 years uh, in order to refreeze what has unfrozen over the last, say, 20, 30 years. Now, once you say uh, um, that, I, I sort of scratch my head and I, I can go, well, I can sort of see the Americans agreeing to that, except those that happen to live in Alaska. I can't see the Canadians being particularly enthusiastic uh, over that idea. And certainly when it comes to Russia and Putin, um, I can see vigorous uh, objections uh, to having a permanent white cloud uh, posted um, over what is your territory. Now, of course, when it comes uh, to such proposals, we're more or less in the realms of science fiction. And of course, what we know about human activity um, is this phrase, unintended consequences. Some scientists can come along and say, oh, all we need to do is put a permanent white cloud over uh, the Arctic. This, is, this reflects um, the sun's uh, rays back out into outer space, lowers the temperature and hence freezes water. But what happens, for example, uh, to the port of um, St. Petersburg? I mean, part of the year it's frozen in, isn't it? And they have to use nuclear um, powered uh, icebreakers in order to um, supply uh, the city. But what happens if that is permanently uh, frozen all the year round as a result of this refreezing uh, the Arctic? And, and what happens if the ice is so thick uh, that you can't get nuclear uh, powered um, uh, supplies uh, into the city or out uh, of the city? I'm, I'm just conjecturing, uh, of course, but precisely. You know, we're not talking about an exact science. You cannot say, well, we're going to shoot a cloud up over the Arctic. It's going to be of X size and will produce exactly a one degree drop uh, in temperature. Why can't it produce, for example, a 1.5 uh, 
a drop in temperature. And, and what produces a, a drop in temperature in the Arctic doesn't then necessarily take you back uh, to uh, the global climate pattern of uh, pre-industrialization. This is what this uh, 1.5 degree centigrade stuff uh, is all about. So the idea uh, that you simply cool the world down and everything is um, a-okay again, uh, I think that's profoundly delusional. In other words, I'm raising the danger precisely that capitalist governments um, uh, are not able to get their act together and you can't blame them, they are capitalist governments, to actually overcome the logic and workings of capitalism. Uh, that um, uh, the, the needs of business, uh, the need to, um, how should I put it, uh, have economic growth um, actually uh, is impossible uh, for them uh, to resist. And instead they go for some um, techno uh, solution. Now, some of the techno solutions are still not technically possible, uh, but amongst those that have been proposed is, uh, for example, um, you know, putting metal um, into the seas. Um, others have talked about not just uh, covering the Arctic uh, with a white cloud for 20 or 30 years, but shooting up seawater um, into the stratosphere so that you have, um, you know, water droplets, uh, which again reflect um, sunlight out. And there are proposals to put in uh, up into space giant reflector uh, uh, umbrella uh, type things, huge, huge. Um, um, things that again reflect uh, the light uh, of the sun back out into space. Now, again, these aren't technically feasible at the moment, uh, but one, you know, um, doesn't need to be a genius at least to suggest uh, that if you start tampering with nature uh, in that way, you can have all sorts of disastrous consequences. After all, we're, we're living through a period of history of where we become acutely aware now um, of the damage that industrialization, particularly fossil fueled uh, industrialization um, has done to the planet. But it's not only uh, that, it's uh, industrial agriculture, it's beef uh, agriculture, but it's also, you know, in, in terms of, it's only in very recent times, they've um, banned these um, is it hydrocarbons uh, that used to be in all our fridges that were creating a hole um, um, in the ozone uh, level. I mean, must admit, it was only about 20 years ago that I'd even heard uh, of the ozone um, layer um, that shields us from the, the sun's uh, harmful rays, let alone the idea that there was a hole uh, in it, let alone the idea that there was a hole in it caused by human activity. So, uh, we're in a period that we know uh, human activity um, has a, an adverse impact um, on uh, the workings of nature. And in the midst of that pose, quite frankly, science fiction type uh, interventions strikes me as an act of desperation, which indeed could actually turn out, we don't know, but it could actually turn out to be worse uh, than the problem that you're purportedly uh, uh, curing. And as I say, I think there's a strong temptation uh, for governments, in spite of the contradictions that I've already referred to, uh, to actually take that line 
um, of, of March. Um, okay. So yeah, from our point of view, um, the answer is pretty obvious. It's, it's tremendously hard. Uh, and that is uh, that we need to overcome the workings of capitalism. Put it simply, what class can do that? From our angle, not the peasant class. Uh, it's not the petty bourgeoisie. It's not the Green Party. It's the working class. And it has to be the working class acting on a global scale. Uh, and therefore it has to be, has to, we have to have a program and not of socialism in one small country or one, one small part of the world like Scotland or Cuba. Uh, it has to involve Western Europe. It has to involve North America. It has to involve China. Uh, and then we're talking about a reasonable uh, prospect of um, either um, um, limiting, uh, you know, runaway uh, climate change or managing uh, the disaster uh, that potentially uh, faces uh, humanity. In other words, we've got a increasingly dangerous threat to human civilization. And yet I'm putting forward a program uh, that quite clearly uh, is at least in human terms, uh, long-termish. Of course, what that therefore poses is us raising minimum uh, demands, but our minimum demands quite clearly uh, are never going to be enough because uh, um, quite clearly uh, what we're dealing with here uh, is something of the order of um, a global um, system change because we face a global climate uh, change. Okay, moving on, showing you um, in microcosm the problems that governments will have uh, when it comes to even our minimum uh, demands when it comes to questions such as uh, the climate. Uh, we've had reports in the press over the last few days of this Tory party advisory uh, board. Uh, that if you donate uh, 250,000 quid to the Tory party, you might be, you know, you might be asked to join this uh, advisory uh, board. Um, what's this advisory board calling for at the moment? Well, you know, you don't have to be uh, brilliant to work it out. We're just uh, um, in the middle of still the pandemic, uh, but economically, uh, countries like Britain, the EU, the United States are recovering now uh, when it comes to the depths of the, um, the COVID recession. And what these people are calling for is cuts in spending and uh, cuts in taxation. Um, in other words, you know, uh, what they want is cuts in Social Security, cuts in pensions, uh, cuts in wage rises, cuts in spending on health cuts in spending uh, when it comes to education, cuts all around uh, and less taxes on them. So what you get, of course, is this wonderful syndrome of um, billionaires, uh, uh, you know, proclaiming their commitment to green um, causes and uh, showing off their environmental concerns. Meanwhile, uh, pursuing uh, the narrowest, most selfish um, um, interests. Um, in other words, uh, they don't want to give uh, their uh, capital away 
uh, uh, to governments uh, that might spend uh, it on useless things like people. Okay, so in terms of this advisory uh, board, quite frankly, I haven't heard of any of them. Um, so I'm not gonna bother uh, listing out who they are. Suffice to say, they include bankers, uh, lots of them are property uh, uh, developers, um, others of them are um, uh, those that are engaged in outsourcing. Uh, in other words, uh, they are in receipt of um, government uh, contracts. Isn't it a surprise that uh, people who are in receipt of government uh, contracts want to exercise influence over the government and uh, what it's uh, doing, what it's spending uh, its money on? And of course, what the Tory party tell us what the Tory government tell us is of course these people exert no uh, influence well what's the point of an advisory board I ask you that exerts no influence that you know the two terms run in counter to each other the reason I'm on an advisory board is to advise you the reason I'm on an advisory board is to influence you it's quite straightforward and the claim that that's not the case uh, quite frankly is to is, is an insult uh, to our intelligence and, and more on the humorous side uh, we also have the story of the uh, toy i think vice uh, chair um you know selling in in return for donations uh, introductions to the future king king charles i don't know whether he'll be called king charles the third um they can choose to be called something different either way um huge amounts of money have been paid over in order to get an intro uh, to HRH Charles and as a result of uh, one particular example that's doing the rounds at the moment that gets you on to the Prince's trust and uh, charity status and meeting all sorts of uh, movers and shakers uh, in the establishment and again another example of this involving the same Ben Elliott uh, the vice chair of the Tory party not so long ago involved one Richard Desmond, do you remember him of the, um, the Daily Star, who then went into property developing. The reason I can remember Richard Desmond, by the way, is he also was the guy that brought up the, um, the Morning Star's um, print machine uh, that was bought under Tony Chater that was going to print his way out of crisis. That was his big idea. It, it didn't work. Um, it took them into crisis and they ended up selling it on the cheap to Richard Desmond. But uh, Richard Desmond went into property and what a surprise it was when um, uh, uh, Ben Elliott arranged for him uh, in some banquet to sit in next to uh, Robert Jenrick, who just happened uh, to be the housing minister that was in charge of, um, you know, saying yes or no uh, to various uh, tax breaks and... Um, um, deals and isn't it amazing that Richard Desmond got what he wanted um, well it isn't surprising that's why they go to these damn dinners that's why they get these introduction it's why they buy um, uh, influence in high places and that's not only influence over the future monarch it's also of course influence uh, over the existing uh, government and just showing you that it isn't unique to the Tory party we have a cash-strapped Keir Starmer attempting to do just the same thing. So Keir Starmer says, well, the Labour Party is, uh, you know, um, short of cash at the moment. Oh, no, oh dear, we're having to lay off 
a load of full-time staff from uh, Victoria Street. What do I do about it? I make an appeal to the members. No. Uh, what he does, he goes, this is the Times, he goes and courts billionaires. And we have uh, stories of him um, going off to um, court uh, cap the Capita Group. Uh, this is one of these subcontracting sub groups. The Sainsbury family, we remember them um, under Blair reaching the giddy heights of ministerial uh, positions. We also have, again, property. Uh, developers. And we have certainly the story of Fran Perrin. She's from the Sainsbury family, uh, just recently donating 250,000 quid to the Labour Party. And of course, that doesn't buy you any influence, does it? Doesn't buy you any influence over Labour Party policy and internal workings, doesn't buy you anything, does it? Uh, of course it doesn't. Uh, and anyone who suggested uh, that this buys you influence is clearly a liar. Uh, just as you're a liar if you suggested the Tory party's advisory board um, was there to advise the government and their advice had any impact. Of, of course it's not true. Well, of course it must be, must be uh, true. Why is the Labour Party cash-strapped? Well, uh, not so long ago, it was rolling in money. Uh, we saw a massive increase in uh, Labour Party membership and precisely from the, um, you know, the membership fees and the donations that were coming in, the Labour Party was, um, how should you put it, rich. It was rich. Uh, well, what's happened since then is that membership, of course, has dropped by, roughly speaking, 100,000. But the crucial question of why the Labour Party is so short of money, it's called the courts. It's called lawyers' fees. It's called... Um, expenses and it's called damages and uh, the Labour Party has been embroiled in court actions um, mainly involving mainly involving its own members but not only so we know the example of the panorama uh, film uh, that purportedly whistleblowed remember on uh, anti-semitism that was rife um, in the Labour Party, including in uh, Victoria Street, and how uh, these people who were um, whistle, um, supposed whistleblowers, um, you know, um, under Jeremy Corbyn, uh, were just, you know, um, oh, this isn't true, uh, the Labour Party said under Jeremy Corbyn, and how under Starmer, uh, they settled out of court, and they paid loads of money, was it to John Wade or John Ware? Uh, the director of this panorama film, but also uh, to these Labour um, staffers. And we know that, that they fought lots of other court cases uh, and there were lots of other court cases going on uh, as we speak. And that's why the Labour Party uh, is short of uh, cash. And what we have is, is the story, uh, I think out of something like 250 staff, whatever the figure is, something like that, uh, that something like half um, are going to be, use that euphemism, let go. Um, well, I was reminding comrades um, earlier today uh, that um, in 1917, um, when uh, Lenin uh, was uh, the leader of the Bolshevik party and the Bolsheviks had just taken power and uh, remember Lenin comes back from um, his um, time in 
some horrible Finnish marsh and uh, he comes back to Petrograd. Do you know, this is a rhetorical question, I know, because none of you lot can shout except to yourself. Do you know how many full-time staff the Bolshevik center had? This is at a time when the Bolshevik party has a quarter of a million members. And what we're talking about here, remember, is a level of commitment vastly higher uh, than your average uh, Labour Party uh, member. We're talking about people who are risking their lives, who've been through persecution, who've been driven underground uh, by the uh, provisional government, who doesn't just recruit any old person, is a solidly worker uh, party. Well, they had eight, eight full-timers, eight. And I think that included Lenin's brother, Lenin's sister, and Lenin's wife. Um, that, that's all the apparatus that they needed, uh, because what you had is uh, Bolshevik committees that were self-activating, self-financing, and could publish their own publications. They didn't need the money all going into centre. Uh, all centre did, basically, uh, would be publishing um, a Pravda, uh, the Bolshevik uh, daily. Um, what you found uh, throughout the Russian Empire is that Bolshevik committees, including uh, in the capital, including in Moscow, produced their own publications and had their own apparatus. And that's what's noticeable uh, about the Labour Party is how centralised things have become, how bureaucratised things uh, are. I always remember um, um, in my own constituency uh, getting a, a leaflet through uh, at a general election a few years ago and um, I live in London, um, but I don't live in Holborn. And I was getting leaflets through my door saying, vote for Steer, Steer, Steer Starmer, Keir Starmer. And this wasn't when he was leader of the Labour Party, I, I add. I ring up Labour Party HQ and all I get is someone um, who's basically um, just a, a, an ordinary worker um, who's employed to, you know, as a on a phone bank and we're not talking about a Labour Party member we're talking about someone just employed and I'm trying to explain things uh, to this person on the other end of the telephone and they just couldn't give me any answer they couldn't do anything they had no uh, responsibility they had no ability to mark, pass me on to anyone else uh, I think that just tells you everything um, you know about just employing people on the labour market which is how uh, the Labour Party approaches much of its uh, full-time uh, uh, staff. Okay, anyway, um, just to add a, a footnote to um, the Labour Party question, just have a read of Dan Hodge uh, in the Mail on Sunday, and he says, well, this um, ban on these four groups in the Labour Party, it's all very well and good, but it ain't enough. Uh, that we've got to have um, uh, Corbyn thrown out. Um, he's completely um, unacceptable. Uh, and we've got to have momentum uh, barred as well. Uh, well, we've warned you. We warned Corbyn ages ago using the old poem. First of all, they came for the communists, blah, blah, blah. And then there was no one left and there was no one to protect me. That's where the official left is going. And to, you know, as Momentum has done, to write articles in the Morning Star saying that they oppose 
uh, bans and prescriptions at the same time follow that with a phrase about how they also oppose all forms of racism you don't need to you know you don't need that much to work out what they're talking about basically what they're accusing uh, the four groups of um of being anti-semites i mean that that's basically what they're doing so they're excusing uh, the bans and prescriptions at the same time faking an opposition it will not save momentum um you know from uh, the purge when it hits them and just um finally um on that one um, um dan hodge also calls for the purging of uh, peter peter mandelson you scratch your head why because he's the guy that uh, shifted the Labour Party into a pro-European position. You know really what he's, what, he, what he's calling for is Keir Starmer to purge Keir Starmer. Um, and that's the nature of a witch hunt. But a witch hunt is never satisfied. Has to be said, and I think this is true, uh, that when Dan Hodge says, I have not heard of any of these four groups apart from Labour against the witch hunt, I suspect he's telling the truth. Um, and he presumably has heard of uh, Labour against the witch hunt, not because Labour against the witch hunt has had such a huge impact uh, on uh, British uh, politics, um, but the, the, the others have basically had zero um, uh, impact, at least on him. And so he's saying, well, what's the point of feeding us minnows? Uh, we want something with real red meat on it. And that is Corbyn, and that's momentum. And what I would say is a lot of what happens over uh, this question of the purge hangs on uh, the Unite uh, election. And what I would guess is if Coin wins, uh, then the purge goes ahead uh, because he's not risking breaking uh, the union link. He doesn't want to break the union link. He wants to weaken the union link. He needs the money. He wants uh, their support bureaucratically, just like the US Democrat Party isn't going to turn away union money. Uh, but if coin wins, then we would expect, not a prophecy, but we would expect uh, Corbyn to go. We would expect momentum uh, to be attacked. Um, if, on the other hand, um, we have a continuity uh, candidate win, uh, then that's a different question. And I, I wouldn't like to get there. All we know is that um, there's an awful lot of voices basically saying we've got to see more at Brighton. Uh, we've got to see Starmer act tough in Brighton. And I, my suspicion is uh, that he would very much welcome uh, it if there was a live conference at Brighton this year. And when he announces the purging of momentum and that uh, he, on his watch, Jeremy Corbyn, will never be let back into the parliamentary Labour Party if he gets hecklers saying, you traitor, um, you turncoat, you Judas, he would welcome that because this will be showing uh, his loyalty to the bourgeoisie. This will be showing he was a safe pair of hands, just like uh, Neil Kinnock and after him, of course, Tony Blair, who didn't need to sacrifice Clause 4 because it had never been put into operation, but it was a symbolic act. And that was something uh, that the Murdoch press 
uh, wanted. So that's what we need to understand about Brighton and the purge, that it's acting as a symbolic uh, um, um, sacrifice at the present. And certainly when it comes to the right of the Labour Party, they want to see the back of a momentum because they convince themselves that it's more uh, than it is. They think it's some sort of uh, Corbynite Praetorian guard uh, rather than lily-livered um, social democratic uh, liberals. That's really what momentum is. Okay, just two other points. Um, you wouldn't have read this in Socialist Worker. Um, don't know why not. Uh, but we've had a court judgment over Paul Bla Blackledge. Who's Paul Blackledge? Well, he was someone who resigned uh, from the Socialist Workers Party in 2020. And this was in the context of Me Too and a campaign that was called something like SWP Survivors. And Paul Blackledge, um, it, allegations were made at him. He, he was um, a UCU, University College Union activist and allegations were, were made against him uh, basically being a sexual predator, including being a rapist. And uh, what happened was, is that um, one of his uh, comrades, Yanish Bashish, if I get his name right, I'm sure I haven't got his name right, but he, he was a, a former unison uh, militant that trained himself up as a lawyer. He defended uh, Paul Blackledge when it came to the UCU. Uh, the UCU, from my memory, disciplined him or barred him from standing in an election. My memory's a bit vague uh, on this one. But what, what the point I'm trying to get to uh, is that the SWP leadership acted very decisively um, in suspending um, and um, basically browbeating his supporters, uh, that it wasn't only um, Yanish, it wasn't only his partner that defended him. Um, he had a lot of support amongst SWPers in the UCU and in his hometown of Newcastle. And as a result of that, Amy Lever, the Joint National Secretary, went up uh, um, to Newcastle and basically laid down the law uh, to them as a result of which I think something like half uh, the branch resigned uh, as well as others resigning around that issue in terms of the SWP. The, the reason why they acted like that was to show uh, that they take women's oppression seriously. Why should uh, that be such an issue? Well, the answer to that goes back a little bit before the time of Paul Blackledge, uh, and it goes back to the Delta case. This is one Martin Smith, uh, the national organizer, former national organizer of the SWP, who was uh, uh, um, facing accusations um, of, of rape. Uh, now, we don't know in either case when it comes to Paul Blackledge um, and his case, or Martin Smith, Conway Delta, in his case, what actually happened. We're in no position uh, uh, to judge. And what we would argue in our organization is that the SWP's uh, disciplinary um, um, machinery wasn't in any position either. Uh, that when it comes to such cases, you know, all you need to do is Google it and, and look at police procedure 
uh, when it comes to rape cases to actually see nowadays how sophisticated uh, they are. And they're not just talking about, you know, semen stains. Uh, they're talking about taking witnesses uh, from people after the event. Um, you know, that they've got quite a, a sophisticated procedure. You know, is someone suffering from trauma? Um, how did someone behave? Uh, how did he uh, behave? What did he say? What did she say? What did her friends say? All of these questions and the ability to actually go to someone's phone. And so we want this information. What about your computer? What about getting the computer records of other people associated uh, with this case? Well, what happened in the Conway Delta case is that the, um, the disciplinary uh, committee uh, acted uh, basically as mates of Martin Smith. They defended him. Uh, they dismissed uh, the um, allegations. Um, and yet they resurfaced. There were more accusations against um, uh, him. And eventually uh, he resigned. And the SWP, of course, had its biggest series of splits in its entire uh, history. And I suspect that's the case in terms of absolute numbers and also proportionate numbers. So what we had this time is the SWP acting in equally a wrong way, uh, but the diametrically opposite way, that instead of defending Paul Blackledge, who was, um, as I said, on the editorial board, or I think I said anyway, on the editorial board of International Socialism, a well-known SWP writer, um, um, speaker, and all the rest of it, uh, instead of acting to defend him, uh, they simply um, shunted him aside and of course, you would find none of that in socialist work and none of that in socialist review, none of that in international socialism. The reason I bring this particular case up now is that we've had a very interesting high court case and a judgment from it. And it's on that I'm commenting. And what we've had is a trial uh, in front of a high court judge. And the high court judge has uh, ruled uh, Blackledge as uh, innocent. Um, he's heard the evidence, he said that there's no stain on his uh, character and awarded him, um, I think it's 70,000 pounds damages. Now the problem of course comes that uh, as the high court judge himself, I think it was a him, but anyway, the high court judge uh, said, well, this is a very strange trial uh, because we've only got one side uh, in other words, those that were making the accusations uh, weren't present at the trial. And that wasn't because of Paul Blackledge. Um, this was because they were hiding behind anonymity. Now, I don't know why, uh, if you're making such accusations, uh, you would hide behind anonymity, but I can understand why. I can understand it. Um, but um, how? Um, um, Paul Blackledge gets his uh, £70,000 damages uh, from a website anonymously based in Switzerland that it has been run by anonymous people. I don't know. All I would say is that uh, clearly his reputation has been uh, damaged. And I would actually argue in the way that the SWP handled this case, um, it's damaging to the reputation also of the SWP uh, in a similar way uh, to the handling um, of um, the Delta uh, uh, case. Okay.
just one other thing. Um, how, well, how, how the money was got together to fight this uh, uh, case, again, remains something um, um, of a mystery. You know, um, such a, a court action uh, doesn't come cheap. We're talking about an awful lot of thousands and tens of thousands uh, of pounds. So we not only have him being awarded um, damages, we have him being awarded costs. How on earth he goes about uh, recovering his costs or his lawyers go about recovering uh, those costs? I mean, I just don't know. I just don't know. Very strange trial. It's very rare uh, to have a trial with only one side um, and uh, not the other. Okay, just last point, and um, this is a, um, how should you put it, a silence is significant story. Uh, this is a report again of the, um, the ban and prescription on four organisations in the, no, not in the Labour Party, three in the Labour Party and one outside the Labour Party, i.e. Resist, which is an organisation established by Chris Williamson, Socialist Appeal, Labour Against the Witch Hunt, and Labour in Exile uh, Network. So three in the Labour Party. This is the report in Socialist I'm talking about. It reports that four small groups have been purged. And what's significant about it, of course, is it then draws out the history um, and declares that the Labour Party um, has been a bourgeois party for a long time now. And uh, the change happened apparently in the late uh, 1980s and the early 1990s. And the definitive moment came was with the um, deselection of Terry Fields and um, whatever um, his name is up in Coventry, if anyone tells me. Anyway, I'll, I'll remember it in a... Steve Nellist, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Didn't even see anyone uh, prompting me. But anyway, the point would be, of course, one of these groups is Socialist Appeal. What's the significance of Socialist Appeal? This is the group uh, that, that came from the split on the uh, Central Committee of Militant, led by the founder of militant tendency going back to the days of the Revolutionary Socialist League in the 1940s and all the rest of it. Now, this, is, this, this would be as if uh, the SWP had had a split with Tony Cliff. The, 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 and then not to mention Tony Cliff. And so, I mean, I, I remarked a couple of weeks ago, I find it quite a remarkable achievement that the Socialist Workers Report of Batley and Spen manage not to report the name George Galloway or the Workers' Party. You have to be conscious not to do that. You know, where did the guy come third? You know, what electorate did he win? I mean, clearly a significant bargain and clearly a magnificent performance. Whatever you think of George Galloway, it's not an irrelevance. But when it comes to the Labour Party banning four organisations, one of which was originally formed by your founder leader, and one of which, of course, defined itself as, well, the Labour Party still remains some sort of, not just bourgeois Labour Party, but key, key to the British Revolution, then became the split, and, and uh, Peter Taft went on to militant Labour, 
and then um, um, Scottish militant labor, and then the Scottish Socialist Alliance, and finally uh, SPEW, the Socialist Party in England and Wales, you would have thought they might mention that history, but instead, no, uh, you get this uh, ridiculous history uh, of uh, the character of the Labour Party was decided in the late uh, 80s and 90s. And yet, where the hell did um, Corbyn come from? How did this um, uh, membership of this party grow to half a million? Uh, and how comes they want to purge anyone um, anyway? Uh, clearly, uh, the character of that party remains um, paradoxical, remains um, um, a site of um, contestation. Uh, but the socialist doesn't want us uh, to know that story, doesn't want us to know the name or its own readers or its own members uh, to know the name of its uh, deadly rivals. Uh, the same, of course, goes for um, Socialist Appeal itself. When it was reporting the banning of four organisations, the only one it could uh, bring itself to name was its own. And the leaders of these organisations, I think, treat their own members, their own readers, as if they're morons. Well, they're not morons, but you can turn them into morons. And I think that's the nature of these sects, that they take, you know, militant, they take intelligent young people and turn them, sorry, uh, into parrots, into you know, um, speaking machines. They're, they're automatons that don't read anyone else's publications, don't think about political issues, cannot think for themselves without being told what to think from on high. So if socialist appeal doesn't exist uh, uh, in the socialist party world, it doesn't exist. If George Galloway, because of their bust up with him in respect, doesn't exist, he doesn't exist. And you don't question it. You don't raise it. And we know that they don't raise it. I'm sorry, Charlie. I'm sorry, uh, uh, Amy Leather. We read your internal bulletins. We read your pre-conference bulletins. We read the internal bulletins of the Socialist Party, and we know your members don't raise these questions. They don't raise anything of any interest. And it's not because they couldn't think, it's that they had their brains sort of fried uh, while they're members of your horrible um, organization. And just to put the record straight, by the way, um, that the decisive moment in the fashioning of the current Labour Party under Starmer, under uh, uh, Corbyn under Blair, under Attlee, uh, wasn't the purging it was the purging of the CPGB. And the dates, if you want dates, and I'll give again broad dates, just like the comrades in the Socialist Party, its dates were 1918 and the adoption of Clause 4 of bourgeois socialism, and somewhere in the mid-20s, where individual members of the Communist Party were barred from being Labour Party members. What's the significance of Clause 4? This is after the Russian Revolution, and what the Labour Party is adopting is the most un-Marxist definition of socialism it's got available to it. So it's adopting a, um, a form of socialism that's more in tune with the British high command than it is with the British proletariat, uh, let alone the socialist uh, uh, proletariat uh, in Britain. What's the significance further on the down the line is the barring of the Communist Party from affiliating. Remember, in 1916, the anti-war British Socialist Party 
the inheritor of the British Social Democratic Federation, Britain's first Marxist organization, which became anti-war in its Easter conference of that year and saw Henry Hyman walk out to form the National Socialists. It was refused affiliation in spite of the fact that the BSP was already an, an affiliate. And then we saw the bans and prescriptions coming in uh, that uh, the, um, you couldn't be a Labour MP and a member of the Communist Party and uh, Labour constituency, Labour parties weren't allowed to back communist, communist Party party candidates. And then you couldn't be an individual member of the Communist Party. This was the decisive moment in the Labour Party, because what it defined it as is a party that's loyal to capital as opposed to, be, as opposed to being a united front of all working class organisations, which it uh, had been uh, up to that point. And that's what we want to return it to, but of course, on a higher uh, level uh, than when the Labour Party was first formed. But my plea is to comrades on the left is don't hide uh, things. We live in the age of Google, we live in the age of the internet, and what you think you're keeping quiet from your members, uh, groups that you refuse to mention because you find them embarrassing, everyone else knows. And what is significant is that you cannot say it. So it's a significance when the SWP cannot report high court case uh, that involves its former leading members. It's significant when Socialist Appeal cannot report the truth uh, about the, pur the purge. It's significant when the Socialist Party cannot report the truth about history or about the current purge being carried out by Starmer. That's a sign of profound weakness. That's it. Thank you.